0: Galatians five, sixteen. Let us give our attention to God's Word. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit." Holy Spirit, we desire to live and walk in You today, to be led by You, directed by You, to walk in the paths that are good and for our refreshment, because they are, because they are the ones where You have prepared, You have trodden them down for us. So have mercy on us this morning, and through the grace of the Lord Jesus, through the teaching of the Word, to the glory of the Father, and for the joy of Your people. We might be filled with You, O Holy Spirit. We might be conformed to Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday, after around noon, I had... Worked on the sermon for a while and needed to take a break. So I put the sermon in my back pocket to kind of read it and think about it and meditate on it as I walked down to the local Walgreens down from the office and get, to get a Bear and me a, a Diet Coke. And um, as I got into the Walgreens, I remembered I needed to get some deodorant. So I'm looking at the maze of choices in the uh, de- deodorant aisle, and my eye fell upon this one called Axe. I'm sure the young folks know about that. That's the really cool deodorant, in case you didn't know. I know that because it was in the Wall Street Journal, which I'm not sure that it still gets to be a cool thing to do, to wear Axe if it's in the Wall Street Journal, but they said it was really cool, so they had to buy one, get one free thing. I picked up a couple of cans of Axe. I went up to the cash register and paid for them, and the, the lady, she's about 50 or so, she said, "Whoop!" lot oh, the girl's going to be after you now. <laughs> so, well, that, that's not too good. I'm the pastor of a church. I'm married and I'm 42 years old. The last thing in the world I need is to have the girls after me. Well, that kind of took her back a little bit. So she said, well... <laughs> she said... Well, it's okay to look, at it? That's just human nature. Which I said, what well, I mean, what a lead in, right? I, said, I am so glad you said that, because my job is to try to convince people not to do what their nature so desperately wants. Well, at this time, the lady who's also in line, she is love. Woo! Preach it, man! Preach it! <laughs> Which is all I needed, of course. And so I pulled out my sermon, I said, look at this, crucifying the flesh. I said, the flesh is those sinful desires that are so ungodly, I'm trying to convince people at the church to crucify them. And then she said, kind of her her last little zinger, well, that's un-American. (laughs) Un-American. What an answer, huh? As you can imagine, I'm not going to let... Her get the last word in. So I said, well, and that's why not many people come to the church where I preach, isn't it? (laughs) So I expect fully well that the uh, Congressional Committee on Un-American Tendencies to show up during the middle of the sermon. It's an un-American topic. I will agree with her on that. But you know what? The underlying idea is not completely un-American. You may remember it if you played varsity sports in high school, certainly if you played any college Athletics. You remember two-a-days. Some of you do. Did any of you ever have two-a-days in the August sun? It would be, what, 612 degrees outside. <laughs> 413% humidity. And that coach would make you run the bleachers. For you folks who are not, don't know what running the bleachers is, that's where you run up the stairs, across, down. Up, across, up, down. And you run, and then you go to the other side and you run Through those also, you lined up for what seemed to be endless wind sprints and you pushed yourself until quite literally some people would puke. And then, that was morning, you get to do it all over in the afternoon. And Coach, of course, being full of sympathy would say something brilliant like, no pain, no gain, at which time you wanted to help him have some gain through pain, didn't you? Two-a-days are not fun, but we did not do it for the two-a-days. We did not do that form of physical discipline in order to have the fun of two-a-days. Do you know why we did it? We did it because in a couple of months, what was happening? There was a game to be played. We wanted to be in the game. We didn't want to be in the two-a-days. We went through the two-a-days to get in the game. There was another example of this in the Duke basketball team this year. When the season began, no one expected Coach K to pull off another miracle and end up at the big dance. Because too much of his talent had graduated or elected to turn pro, and, and this would be what they call a rebuilding year for Duke. But Coach K had something else in mind, because you see, Coach K was not interested in watching the tournament on the television. <laughs> he wanted to be in the game. So he went to his young kids, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids who a year from then would be making 30 or 40 million dollars and he said to them you know what guys we are not we are not the most talented team on the on the courts this year but i tell you something we can go to the ncaa tournaments if we are the most disciplined team the most the, in the best shape of all the teams on the court this year And so Duke already had a very physically demanding uh, training program and schedule. But they doubled it in order to be the most disciplined team. And of course, they did not win at all. But you know what? They finished about 100 teams ahead of where everybody said they would finish. And they went and added another to their string of Sweet 16 appearances. They were in the game. See, they were in the game because they were disciplined, because they went through a lot of pain in order to play in the game. Galatians 5.24 tells us that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. The flesh is that old sinful desire that we have. It is our passions and cravings that Pastor Kaiser just spoke of when he told of the church leader who felt the desire to be number one. Now, the crucifying part is not fun. I do not want to pretend that it is. But I also would remind you as we begin, that is not the end which we seek. (laughs) The end is to get in the game. And the game is to glorify God. To enjoy Him by becoming like Jesus. That's the game for which crucifying the flesh, we might consider the (laughs) two-a-days. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from all iniquity. Why, Paul? Why do this departing from iniquity when that's so hard? Because he says, if you cleanse yourself from dishonor, you will be a vessel for honor sanctified and useful to the master and prepared for every good work. That good work is what we might call being in the game. And my hope today is that God would give us the grace to put to death some of our sinful desires, our sinful natures, and be prepared for good work, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit might blossom and bear bountifully in our lives. Remember this topic, the series that I'm looking at when I preach is all based on this Galatians 5 thing. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. But in order that the fruit might be produced, there also has to be a pruning away of the old nature. Now, to receive the benefits of the fruit, we all want love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And to receive those fruits, we need first to notice that only those who belong to Christ get to crucify the flesh. Key word there is get to. You get to. Now, I find that many Christians believe that their greatest enemy is the devil. I know at a church like ours, there may be some of you who suspect that our greatest enemy is Washington, D.C., or at least the judiciary branch of the government. (laughs) But did you hear Pastor Kaiser's testimony? Even in a place where they are locked in jail for preaching the gospel, they did not say, Lord, protect us from the government. That's not what they said, is it? Protect us from wealth. Protect us from pride. See, the Bible does not say that the enemy, that our greatest enemy is the devil. Yes, the devil is a powerful enemy. Yes, he's a dangerous foe. Yes, the temptations of the world and its governments can promote ungodliness. Yes, we work against those and are aware of those, but the Bible says that your greatest enemy is yourself. It's the flesh. Augustine was uh, probably. Second to John Calvin, the smartest man, certainly the second greatest Reformed theologian ever to live, and he was known frequently to pray this, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. Myself. Charles Spurgeon, those of you who prefer Baptist examples, said this, All the fire which the devil can bring from hell can do us little harm if we did not have so much fuel in our own nature. My nature is the powder in the magazine of the old man, which is my perpetual danger. When we are guarding against foes without, in other words, those foes outside the world, And the devil, we must not forget to be continually on our watchtower against the foe of foes within. The old Puritans used to call this process, which we are considering this morning, this process of dying to self and living for Christ, they called mortification. It comes from the Latin word mortis, which is a noun and it means... Death. So mortification or uh, as uh, the text here calls it, crucifying the flesh is putting to death the old sinful nature with its desires that rage up inside of us. And listen, they desire to control you. They desire to control you and make you do that which you really do not wish to do. We want to be instead controlled by the Holy Spirit. So whether you call it mortification of the flesh or crucifixion of the flesh, it is the process of sanctification. That's another Bible word that's used. It is the process of becoming holy. It is the means by which God makes us look like Jesus. You do know why you need this, don't you? (laughs) You remember the girl I told of last week in Chicago... She sat through the entire worship service, nine years old, with her arms crossed and those laser beams of death shooting out of her eyeballs and her hatred and animosity welling up inside of her because her will was crossed. (laughs) Her uncle picked up a piece of paper and she wanted to pick it up. Obviously, the paper didn't matter, but what mattered was this. Her sinful desires have been crossed. You see, you see it in her—the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit lusting against the flesh. Helen and I saw this in our own precious children when one of them—I'm not sure exactly who it was—it's about three years old—and we kept the dog food in the kitchen on the floor there, and she liked oh, She—I think Rebecca started that. Whoops. she liked to go and play with the dog food. And so one time she was playing with the dog food and we were wondering whether it was a situation where she just had no idea what we were talking about. Is she just childish and and just doesn't know any better? And then out of the corner of our eye, we realized she was picking up dog food and waiting to make sure we saw her before she played with it. (laughs) It wasn't childishness. It was the flesh of lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You see this in the teenager who, though his sinful nature may have been controlled by his parents when he was young and small, never really learned from an early age how to mortify the flesh. And now that he is able to have it Expressed beyond their control is boiling in rebellion as his passions and desires are absolutely out of control. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. I saw it a couple of weeks ago in myself. As Helen had to, this is how I teach my counselees to say it, as Helen had to bless me by pointing out some of my sin by showing me my harshness and shortness with the children. Now, it took me... I don't want to pretend that I got over this quickly. It took me, let's just say, days for right now, so it doesn't look too bad up here in front of everybody. It took me days to get over this. But fortunately, I had this sermon coming, and so God gave me ample opportunity, forced me to think through what was going on in my heart. And I found at least four different passions... And desires welling up from within me first I noticed a distinct time where I felt sorry for myself here were the thoughts that came to my mind <clears throat> people sure do find it easy to criticize me don't they You ever felt that and then this thought I bet no one else has a wife who demands perfection from her husband Not, thank you, Lord, that I have a precious woman who is willing to risk hurting my feelings in order to tell me of sin in my life. But no, I bet no one else has a wife who demands perfection from me. Then second, I noticed a distinct time in which I rationalized my behavior. I said this to myself, you know, I may have been a little short with the, ki- little short with the kids, But who would not be during a move like we've had to go through, right? Or this thought which popped into my head. You know, I wouldn't really have been that way if I'd gotten enough sleep. And then third, after those two steps, I noticed my flesh having first felt sorry for itself and then rationalized its behavior. It began to assert its innocence. (laughs) You know... I'm not so sure I did anything wrong after all. I mean, children need a firm hand, don't they? Doesn't a father have to discipline his kids? And then fourth, and this is the coup de grace, I began to blame others. You know, now that I think about it, Helen's pretty critical, isn't she? I wonder if she would like it if I showed her that book I have of 368 pages of all the sins that she's committed in the last 14, 17 years we've been married. You know, if my kids acted better, I wouldn't have this problem. See the steps? See the desires of the flesh welling up against? The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Have you taken the time to know that own struggle within yourself? Do you know that feeling welling up within you? In order to know it and have victory, there are two things that are necessary. First, thinking is necessary let 's look in our Bibles over at Romans chapter six for a moment Romans six seven and eight, which I think I was to read part of it earlier, but Romans six, seven and eight are actually a longer commentary on galatians five sixteen to twenty five so they take they take uh, Paul explains it in a lot of in a lot of words in in those three chapters and then he kind of condenses it down to the main bullet points in Galatians chapter. But let's look at Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? (laughs) Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life." Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified. There's that word, that the body of sin might be done away with, so we should no longer be slaves to the sin. See the control it has over us? For he who had died is now freed from sin. So if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. Likewise, you also reckon. That word reckon in the Greek is legizomai. It means to think, to count, to do the calculations. Paul is telling you there to think about yourself, verse 11. Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people suppose that Christianity is a religion in which only unthinking people go. (laughs) But that is far from the biblical worldview. God demands that you think all the time. That you think about who you are in Christ. That you think about the effects of your sin. That you think about what you are doing. It's it's as if God is saying to us the same thing that I say to my kids. Will you not think before you act? Has any father ever said that beside me? Am I the only one? Nobody else ever said that? Yeah, right. Curtain me. Okay, a couple of us have. Think before you act, God is saying. And is it not true, loved ones? Is it not true that one of the greatest enticements to sin is when we act without thinking? When we react to a situation instead of pausing? When we feel something and then do rather than pondering and thinking? When we jump instead of considering the principles and the effects. Of our behavior, Let me tell you this, in order to get in the game, you've got to start thinking. <laughs> but there is a doctrine called the noetic effect of sin, and that means something else, too. You've got to think differently. <laughs> I don't want you to just think, <laughs> because thinking gets messed up, too. We need to think differently. Imagine, if you will, that uh, you have a three-year-old daughter or grand... Do we have any three-year-olds here? Is anybody three years old? Who's three? Okay, hi. Imagine that Abigail has a playing out, Should we go let's say we go out to the Haynes house. They kind of live out in the country. And Abby's out there playing in the in the field and she finds a snake. All right? And she she's seeing her brothers with those little toy snakes that they have, and she just assumes that the snake is what? A toy. It's a toy, right? So she picks up the snake, begins to play with it. But we all, we're all there at a picnic, and we notice that it's not a toy, it's a rattlesnake. Now, if we care about her, what will we do? We will scream, drop it! We will run to try to rescue her. But here's the the problem, isn't it? When you say, drop it, what does the three-year-old think you are trying to take from her? And so what does that little sin nature do? Squeezes it harder, doesn't it? I got me a toy, and there ain't nobody taking this from me. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. When it bites, it'll take it from her, won't it? You see, the difference is, do you trust your father when he tells you that sin is a snake? Or if you prefer, a spider the size of Shelob, since we like Lord of the Rings illustrations. And that's why, friends, that's why the first point is this. Those who are Christ get to crucify the flesh. God says, these are snakes. These are a pit of snakes in which we are living. And so I ask you, do you believe God? Do you believe your Father in heaven when He says, My law is perfect? The requirements of holiness which I lay before you are nothing but great gain? Do you believe the Bible when it says that the commandments of God are not burdensome? Do you believe Do you believe the Bible when it says that your flesh is your greatest enemy and holiness is your greatest happiness? Do you believe God? See, do you know your sin to be a snake? Well, those who do those who Believe God, those who belong to Christ get to crucify the flesh. It's a great privilege. It's a wonderful thing that you are going to want more and more of. And because you want it so much, that leads us right to the second point, which is this. Only those who belong to Christ want to crucify the flesh. Back in Galatians 5, listen again to verses 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you want or wish. And then flip over in your Bible to Romans 7. A little more extended commentary on those verses. Romans 7 beginning at verse 18. Romans 7 verse 18. And remember the point here is Only those who belong to Christ want to crucify the flesh. For I know, Paul says, that in me, that is in my flesh, in my sinful desires, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, well, I just don't find that. For the good that I want to do, I I do not do. But the evil that I do not want to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then this law inside of me. Evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man, but there is another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do... And that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Now, once God begins to change our way of thinking so that we see that sin is a snake and that holiness is a great reward, you can begin to understand how you might want some of this holiness. And if God would just zap us right then with a good dose of holiness, I think we would all be fine. But then we pick up the Bible and He says, and we say to God, How do I get this holiness that is such a great reward in and of itself? And he says, crucify the old nature. And that's just where the little rub is, isn't it? Already you get the hint that this is not going to be such a pleasant thing. And so I want us to think about this question. Why does he call it crucifixion? And why would we want it? Why does he call it crucifixion? Why is the process of becoming like Jesus a process of crucifixion? And why would we want that? Well, the first thing you need to know is that becoming like Christ is called crucifixion because it is only by Jesus' death that there can be a putting to death of our sin nature. We do not have the power within us to be holy. That power is not within us. The cross is the power for becoming like Christ. So that sanctification is a dying of our nature and not, listen, not a resurrection of our nature. A dying of our nature and a resurrection of His nature. The power for sanctification is the cross. So that the process of becoming like Jesus is called crucifixion. But it's not simply the power for sanctification which is at the cross, but it's also, listen, the pattern For sanctification. What it looks like in your life is similar to what it looked like for Jesus to die on the cross. We might say it this way. Like the death of Jesus, which empowers our becoming holy, so is the death to self, which is the process of becoming holy. That's a critical sentence, a critical distinction. Like the cross of Jesus, which is the power for becoming holy, or the death of Jesus, so is the death of self, which is the process for becoming holy. So if we want to understand what it's going to look like in our lives to become holy, to get this great reward, to get in the game, we should look at the cross We should look at Jesus dying on the cross and see what that looks like. Let me tell you four things about it. It is painful. It is pervasive. It is protracted. And it is pitiful. Painful, pervasive, protracted, and pitiful. First, crucifying our sinful nature is a painful work. Crucifixion was the most horrible form of death ever invented. Theologian Alistair McGrath calls it legalized sadism, the most depraved execution imaginable. And similarly, (laughs) dying to my sin nature involves much pain. It costs tears and extracts pleading prayers and strong cries, if it were, easy, Jesus would not have told us to pluck out our eyeballs or cut off our hands rather than lose our salvation. So how is it painful? Well, let me give an example. Husbands, let me talk to the husbands for a moment. Imagine the last time you had a disagreement with your precious honey, right? Okay, now we know, right, that she was 90% wrong and you were 10% wrong. You were 90% right, right? Everybody remember that disagreement that you had back in the 1400s where you were 90% right. If <laughs> you catch on 1400s, you were 90% right. Okay, but pretend for a moment that she was 90% wrong and you were 10% wrong. Now, since you only have a little bit wrong, the Spirit tells you this. The Spirit says that the way of joy is the way of cross of the cross, right? The way of happiness is the way of holiness and humility. So what you should have done, if you were only 10% wrong, knowing as you do that the first one to the cross wins all of the prize, you would be running to the cross, saying to your honey, Honey, let me just tell you, these are the things I did wrong in that situation, and I want to ask you to forgive me. Isn't that what you all did? She would have said, "What?" She, well, she would have fainted, wouldn't she? <laughs> That's not what the sin nature asked for, did it? What did the sin nature say? You know, she's 90% wrong and, uh, well, that means she's got most of the confession to do, doesn't she? I think we'll just sit back here and wait. In fact, let's not even wait. Let's cross our arms and let's give her the cold shoulder so she gets the point, right? That welling up inside of you of pride, that's what has to die. That's what hurts so much, is to say no to those sinful desires. And it hurts. It's painful. Maybe some of you have never experienced the pain because you've never done it. But yet you should be able to feel rising within you this anger and self-righteousness and desire for revenge because of your hurt feelings. It is painful to kill those. Second... It must also be a pervasive work. In crucifixion, every fragment of the body, every sense, every sinew, every nerve is tormented and tortured with pain. So for us, the Holy Spirit does not pick and choose which sins to eradicate He takes on the whole of our sin nature. He is in conflict with every nook and cranny of sinful passions and desires of rebellion within us. And listen, He does not rest because He loves you. (laughs) You feeling loved right now? Hallelujah. Feeling loved? Is anybody feeling loved? Raise your hand. Okay, you need to feel loved. I'm loving on you. Come on, I want you to love me back here a little bit. The Holy Spirit loves you. And He's not going to rest until and unless He presents you perfect. Perfect in Christ Jesus. Now that's really important because a lot of people get into trouble with God because they say to God, you know, I'm willing for you to work on this area of my life, but here's some areas where I just do not want to be sanctified. And it doesn't work that way. It is a pervasive work. Christ on the cross was in pain in every sinew and nerve And so the Spirit wants every bit of you to be made holy. It is painful. It is pervasive. But third, notice that it is a protracted work. We pride ourselves in America on quick executions, not cruel and unusual punishment. But in Rome, their thing was to devise the most slow, tortuous death possible. They actually had some people who would be on the cross for days, writhing in agony. That's why, um, remember, the, the, uh, in the crucifixion of Christ on uh, Friday before the Sabbath, or Thursday before the Friday Sabbath, if you prefer, but either one, they, they sent the guards out to break Jesus' legs, because once the legs were broken, you could no longer push up from the bottom and continue to breathe, and you would quickly suffocate to death. Well, in the same slow, painful way, there's nothing speedy (laughs) about dying to sin. It is a protracted death, one in which you see only incremental and gradual improvements most of the time. And listen, because of this, some of you grow discouraged. You think, well, there must be something wrong with me because my friends and neighbors or my other people that I know keep promising that if I'll go to this revival, if I'll go to this event, if I will just attend this conference, I will get zapped with a super dose of really quick sanctification. I'm going to schedule in my day timer from 8.30 in the morning to 8.45, and I'm going to get Jesus right then, and then everything will be okay. That's just not the way the Bible says that it works. And I know that many people reject biblical Christianity in our day because it promises neither quick nor easy sanctification. Americans want their religion simple and painless and fast. But that schedule does not fit the Spirit. Let me encourage you that we do people a great disservice if we refuse to tell them this truth, if we sugarcoat this reality. Because some people come to Christ or to the Christ of their imaginations because they think as soon as they do, all of their problems will go away. And yes, Jesus is the answer. Yes, Jesus is the life. But those in whom His Spirit lives must die to self. A little bit, every day, it is a slow, protracted work. It's painful, it is pervasive, it is protracted, and it is pitiful. (laughs) It's pitiful. For the naked criminal, they usually were crucified naked. There was no place to hide from the shame. They were exposed to a gaping public, and death by crucifixion meant that people would walk by they would shake their heads, and we still do that, right? Click your lips, your, your mouth. Mm. Pitiful. Pitiful. That's what people would do. They would walk by and, and, and look up at Jesus and say, mm. Pitiful. The Lord must really hate him in order for him to be up there on the cross. Well, in the same way, death to sin is a pitiful experience. Ezra prayed this, Oh my God! I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has gone up into heaven. Do you know that there's only one way to stand before God unashamed? It it happened in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember it? Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. Now, why were they not ashamed? Do you remember? They had no reason to be. They had no reason to be because they had not... They had not sinned, had they? That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, they sin. And then the very next, very right after the verse, where they ate the apple, what does it say they did next? They, they made for themselves clothing, and then they heard somebody coming. They, they heard God, and they hid. They heard, and they hid. They heard, and they hid. They heard, and they hid. And what do we do? We hear, and we hide. We hear, and we hide. We're still hiding from God. The wounding arrows are coming. And we're trying to hide from God. It's still going on. Are are some of you, like me, a little embarrassed to get undressed before the doctor? That's not my... It's not even not my favorite thing. It's one of my least favorite things in the whole world. When we had to apply for insurance again and come moving here, I was afraid we were going to have to get another... Physical, because there's some kind of shame in being seen naked, even with a stud body like I have. My axe deodorant, right? <laughs> but if the doctor is going to heal, he must expose. And the Spirit is the faithful surgeon who cleanses and purifies the most horrible sin in your soul, but in order to do so, it has to be brought to the light. And I know it's a shame. It's pitiful, but it's a beautiful thing when He heals it. Now, given those four characteristics, painful, I'm not going to remember all of my P's, pitiful is the last one, pervasive, (laughs) Pervasive and protracted. Given those four things, why would any one of you want to do that? Here it is, because you have the Holy Spirit in you. Because the Holy Spirit has united you to the resurrected Christ because God is working something in your brain where you have become convinced that sin is to hold a snake and that holiness is to be happy. And you want to see Christ's power in you. Is that your desire this morning? If it is, then I plead with you to renew again your commitment to die to self and to enjoy the happiness of holiness, good people. And then third... Only those who belong to Christ are able to crucify the flesh. If you know what it's like to have children, for those of you who have either been around children or had them on your own, you can relate. And I, Pastor Kaiser may have told this illustration a couple of weeks ago. All of a sudden I draw a strange memory that he might have. But anyway, the little boy, you've probably all been through this with your kids. He's three years old. You put him in the high chair. He you know, refuses to bend his knees, right? Locks those... Dr- Locks his knees back and says, I'm not sitting down. And mom and dad plead with him and beg him. And finally, mom reaches over, grabs his arm, forces down, and then he says, Well, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. <laughs> you know, that's how we are. That's the flesh lusting against the spirit. Because, listen, face it whether you're 2, 22 or 222, you don't like being told what to do. So who's going to make you do it? Who's going to make you. Be holy. Well, the good news is that all three persons of the Trinity are conspiring against your sin nature in order that you get the happiness of holiness. Now, you've seen in the text in Galatians where it clearly says that you are united to Christ, that it's a, it's a thing that Jesus is doing. It's also the work of the Father. What a great encouragement to us that Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, whoever bears fruit, my Father comes and prunes away. Why? Because, so you 'll be miserable it 's not what he says. why does he do it? So you can bear more fruit, so you get to have more of the joy of happiness and what that means in a practical sense is this: God the Father plans and orders every experience and circumstance in your life in order that you get to bear much fruit when we When I do counseling with people, one of the things that we are constantly trying to understand is where is God? <laughs> In the circumstance, when a husband and wife sit down with me, they most almost always, one of them will say, well, my life would be great if she had not messed it up. <laughs> and my, one of my first goals is to get you to say, my life would be great if God would make her act right. Because God is sovereign and in control of all things. And if you have an argument, you need to take it up to God and trust Him. And that changes the perspective because no longer is it a husband and a wife simply squabbling, but it is God who is a loving Father who has ordained the husband and wife to have this very argument in this very time while sitting in these very chairs so that they might what? Crucify the flesh. I mean, it's just so much fun when I say that in crucify the flesh and then of course the blood drains from your lungs and people get to suffocate it's an unpleasant work but that's it see it's God doing something it's not you and your husband having a fight it's God working so listen in every circumstance what I want us to learn to say is this where are the pruning shears of God's love clipping away at my sin where are the pruning shears of God's love clipping away at my sin every time listen kids Every time you think, you know, it really bugs me when my parents do that, especially you who are teenagers. When you think to yourself, it really bugs me when mom does that. Where are the cl- pruning shears of God's love clipping away at my sin? You see, one day, you're not going to believe this. But one day you're going to have a husband. He's going to do worse. <laughs> and you either get pruned now or you'll be sitting in my office and I'll be telling you about crucifying the flesh and you're not going to like it. <laughs> Where are the pruning shears of God's love clipping away at my sin nature? But as much as it is Jesus' work, as much as it, is, as it is the Father's work, it is especially in Galatians, the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me tell you four ways in which the Spirit leads you to crucify the flesh. First, He does so by delighting in God's laws. Now, before a man or woman is born, or as soon as they are born, and before they are born again, we hate God's laws, whenever they cross our preferences. Now, I'm not saying that we hate all of God's laws. Many people get confused there and they think, well, I don't hate God's laws. I'm, I'm all in favor of you know, whatever law it is. I, I agree with God's laws that homosexual people ought not to be able to get married. Well, that's fine. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you hate God's law whenever it crosses your preferences. <laughs> of course, you don't, it doesn't bother you as long as He's not bothering you. <laughs> Who cares? But what about when he gets his little fingers down in the sins and foibles of your life and says, hey, can I talk about this? <laughs> They're his word and he loves them. He loves for you to get to rest in Christ on the Sabbath. He loves for you to be generous in financial support of the kingdom. He loves young people. He loves for you to remain sexually pure. He loves, he loves it when he helps you sacrifice your personal pleasures in order to serve others. He loves helping you honor your parents. He loves helping you submit to the government with great joy and confidence in the sovereign God. The Spirit breaks the power of sin in us by delighting in the law of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. I delight in my inner self in the law of God. The second thing the Spirit does is he takes away the joy of sinning. Romans seven fifteen is an amazing verse. It says this: "For that which I, I, he says, I do not understand my own actions. For that, for for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very things I hate to do. Do you hear the battle raging inside of him? Yes, I sin, Paul says, but I hate it. That hatred is the work of the Spirit. You ever feel guilty when you do something wrong? That's the Spirit." Guilt is a wonderful gift of God. Have you felt that change in your heart whereby the thoughts and desires that once seemed so much fun, you know, when, when, when you were first married and maybe weren't really committed to the Lord, how when, when you thought in your mind, you know, I'm going to get revenge on my spouse. And now just thinking about that brings you grief and guilt and even hatred of the doing. The, the Spirit takes away the joy of sinning. Then third... He changes your mind about sin. I've already covered that, really, but just to remind you that this is why the Scriptures are so critical. It's so critical that we be much in the Word of God as Pastor Kaiser was challenged, uh, offered a challenge to us through our sisters and brothers uh, where he has been visiting. The Scriptures are critical because there is where we see the truth about sin and rebellion. It's there we find the destructiveness of of our own sin, you know this from your your arguments with your spouse. he sometimes says something cruel and uncaring, and you feel like seeking revenge and lashing back and hurting in return. your sin nature says, "Please do this, I will give you a little bit of pleasure for it, but then the spirit changes your thinking, and you begin to say, "You know I don't want to be enslaved by that desire for revenge. God says, "Revengeance is mine, I will repay." The Father knows better than I how to get even with Him. Or give grace where it is undeserved, just like I have gotten. And you begin to have the power of the Spirit welling up inside of you as the Spirit changes your mind about sin. And then fourth, the Spirit gives grace in the time of need. It's complex to explain exactly how He does that. We'll leave it for another day. But simply this, as you grow in maturity... We do not grow less dependent on Jesus. Growth and maturity in Christ is growing more dependent on His grace. And He gives grace for those who seek Him. Well, what do we do with all of this knowledge and this complex topic? Let me let me just kind of rehash and give some application so you make sure that you leave doing something about it. First, here's what I first want To happen in your lives, here's what I would say God wants to happen in our lives first. He wants you to think. And then he wants you to think differently about the passions and desires which seek to control you. Think and then think differently. Then second. I want you to leave here encouraged. That the struggles with sin that are so difficult sometimes to to seem to win, they are not unusual. That is the way that God is appointed for sanctification. So meditate frequently on Christ's crucifixion. Spend time in the Gospels, especially in the Passion Week, and let what, what happened to Christ encourage you about the process you are going through. Then third, realize it is a spiritual work. All of us get ourselves to the point where we hate our sin, and what we do then in response is we grit our teeth clench our fist and say, I'm not going to do it anymore. And at that time is when we have to come to God and say, God, I cannot not do it anymore. I need your help. Will you help me? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit desire to free you from enslaving sin. Seek that freedom in God which your soul so longs for. Now, because this topic is so vast and because it is also (laughs) un-American, repulsive to our natures, we've really only touched on a little bit of it, believe it or not, even though I've talked way too long. What I want to do next week is rather than continue this, although I would like to do that, I think it'd be best, let's take next week and we'll look at one of the fruit. We'll look at love. We'll let these principles percolate down into the specific fruit, and then we'll come back and visit mortification over uh, the months uh, that follows. But as you leave, I want to remind you of this. Please, leave here remembering that your acceptance with the Father is not dependent upon how much progress you've made in mortification of the flesh. Please do not allow the slowness of sanctification nor the continued pervasiveness of sin to be cause for despair. Please do not do that. Don't give up on holiness. It is not... The death of Christ is not a cloak to cover our sin. It is an auger to dig it out. And this week, dear loved ones, here's what will happen. If you covenant yourself that I'm going to seek holiness, it is my joy... Satan will come and remind you of all the ways in which you failed. He will say, what about that time you did this? What about that thing you did here? What about that you did here? And you are not going to win the argument with him if you go head to head with him saying, but I'm holy in this area. I'm holy in this area because you're going to fail more than you succeed. So I want you to learn this poem. You already know it. Stand up and say it loudly. Jehovah knoweth none. <laughs> he knoweth none. <laughs> Listen, He knows, knoweth none because the death of Christ frees His people from the penalty of sin. But because He knoweth none, His love will free us from the power of sin. So it need no longer have its grip on our souls those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its sinful passions and desires. I encourage you, please remember, well may the accuser roar. Let's stand and say it together. I'll give you a line and you repeat after me. Let's stand. Well may the accuser roar. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. Of sins that I have done. I know them all. And thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Thank you, Jehovah God, that your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. That our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. They are buried under an ocean of your love. Thank you that the love of Jesus is greater even than all of our sins, than all of our rebellions, than all of the misguiding and misleading passions of our hearts. Oh Lord, would you please be pleased to give us more and more increasing desire for walking in holiness. Would you please work that greatness in, that great change in our thinking so that we believe that we are privileged that we get to crucify the old self. And in every step of the way, would you remind us that our acceptance with the Father is not because of our sanctification, but it's because of the love of Jesus. Thank you that you remember our sins no more. We praise you. And Father, as we uh, in a few moments are dismissed, we ask that you would bless the lunch to our bodies and that uh, you would give us great joy as we celebrate uh, the marriage today and uh, that you would glorify your name through it, through our conversations, through our actions, that it might be cause and opportunity for holiness in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.